Um, I guess the kids can be excused. Yeah, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> Good morning again. Uh, welcome uh, back if you're with us again. And, uh, I'm like, super excited because uh, we're starting a new series. We're, we just wrapped up our uh, series called Empowered on the first part of the book of Acts, which I don't know about you guys. I personally really thoroughly enjoyed uh, that, uh, that series. I, I was personally challenged and encouraged and so on, convicted and so many things. And so, However, what we're going to be shifting the next four weeks um, into a series on the, the book of Ruth. And then starting in fall, after the first weekend after Labor Day, I think that's the 13th of, of September, we're going to be starting into the book of Philippians. And it's going to be on the idea of uh, joy no matter what. So uh, having joy in the face of anything. What is it, how, how do you have that? How do you, how do you achieve that or whatever? So um, but we're in the book of Ruth. And um, uh, let me pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we have, the reason we're going to pray before we even come before your word is um, we have feeble minds very often. Uh, our hearts are um, distracted and confused sometimes. Um, but Lord, we know that this is your word and that ultimately it's your spirit working through your word that will teach us, convict us, um, instruct us, convict us, and so on. So Lord, we would ask that you would use your word this morning because nobody came to hear Russell's opinion. They came to hear from you. So, Lord, speak to us in your word this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, I got a confession. And it's a true confession. And you guys, if y'all would, let's just keep it here in the room, okay? <laughs> this is important. All right? Yeah. And you may, you may not think about me the same ever again. Uh, here it is. Y'all ready? Sometimes I like chick flicks. Oh. <laughs> I know. You know, my man card levels went down a grade or two. But I do. Like, every, I do. Like, I like, so, uh, every once in a while, I enjoy sitting down with my wife and watching a chick flick. Uh, you know, things like like the new, especially the new Cinderella, for example, or that the new Beauty and the Beast. Man, it's done so well. Uh, how to how to lose a guy in thirty days, you know that kind of stuff, you know. And I wondered why. I was like, am I not really a man? You know, I, is there something wrong with me that I would enjoy a love story? What is that? But I, and I thought about that because you know there's this thing about men. We're not supposed to like that stuff. You know, we're supposed to like driving fast and shooting at each other and blowing up buildings, right? Cars right. that turn into robots and, you know, uh, aliens attacking and war movies. And don't get me wrong. I love that stuff. I mean, I do. I love a good action war movie. I love that stuff. Uh, but on occasion, I enjoy a, a, a real sappy love story. And you know why? I think there's there is the reason why. At the core of love stories is the story of the gospel. 
the gospel is ultimately a love story. It's a story about God's love for us. That he would send sacrificially you know, that his son to die for us, that we would be in relationship with him. And as a matter of fact, in, in the New Testament, actually throughout the Bible, several places, it is the, this, this story is pictured as marriage. It is in you know, kind of this picture uh, of Christ who would uh, be those bridegroom who would come and redeem a filthy, dirty bride and would clean her up and beautify her and present her on this. And then, and then one in the book of Revelation, you see that this one day there's going to be this wedding feast where, where Christ is there and the church is there. And this, you know, it's like happily ever after. You know, they're singing, there's dancing, there's a party. In fact, Jesus says right before his death that he wouldn't taste wine until that great wedding feast at the end. That was right before his death. You know? And so, uh, and then, you know, that's the same feast we, we look to when we celebrate communion. It's this wedding feast, this, this wedding love story. So, in, in line with that, I want to look at another love story. In the book of Ruth, we have a little love story. And in this little love story, um, we see just the, the amazing uh, providence guidance and love of God in the affairs of kind of regular, obscure, actually messed up people. And so that's what we're going to be doing, looking at this story over the next few weeks. And so ladies, and those of you who are closet uh, chick flick guys, okay, this is a little extra chick flick, uh, you know, um, fix you're going to get here. Actually, guys, this may help, you know, now that Football preseason's about to start, or whatever. Maybe you have a little extra time on your hands that you know, maybe your wife or somebody will have get their little chick flick or love story to fix right here on Sunday morning. Okay, so you can thank me later. All right, and so the book of Ruth is a love story, but but it's we're gonna see it's so much more than that. Uh, the book of Ruth just kind of lands in the middle of the Old Testament and and really don't see the big picture, which we're going to see over time, uh, you, you just kind of wonder, like, what, okay, cool. Cool love story, but what, what's the point? What we're going to see is that this little book shows us some amazing things about, about God, how he works, and what that means for us. So, uh, let, so let's, let's jump in. I want to start reading this book together, and, I'll, and, and so we're just going to be in chapter one today. We're going to begin to see this story. So, uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, um, it's towards the beginning. Of the, it's right after the book of Judges. Um, and uh, so if you turn there, if not, if you don't have a Bible, phone or something, uh, it'll be up here on the screen as well. So, if y'all would, uh, we're going to be right here in Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first few verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was standing in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of the two sons were Maon and Chilion, which, by the way, means something like uh, weak and useless. 
we'll get to that. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so this story, it begins back. Okay, it begins with famine. It begins with, and we, modern people, like the idea of famine, we just don't get. Like we're so well fed. Like we're the fattest country that's ever existed. You know, I mean, like the statistical um, obesity rates and all that. We just don't know famine. Like famine for us is when they take too long at the drive-thru, or when you know we get impatient waiting for the microwave to finish, right? Like, you know, it's like famine for us is getting hangry before dinner. You know, dinner's a little delayed, and I get hangry. You know, I really do. I mean, I, you know, but we don't really know famine. Famine in, in, in the third world, even today, is, is a really a tragic thing, and it happens. Um, it's happening in parts of Africa today, different places in the world, where it's either famine of water, uh, which then in turn is famine because they can't grow crops and it's hard for them to have livestock or whatever. But famine in the, in the third world, even today, can mean starvation and death. But particularly, even more so in the ancient world, uh, where life was that much more difficult, uh, it, famine meant a serious crisis. And so it would move entire people groups different places in the world just to find a place to have water and food. Um, and so what we see here, just it says, in the days of Judges, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so, the, so here in Israel, there's famine, but notice it also says, in the days of the Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, this is not a good, this is not a highlight time in the, in, the, in the period in the history of Israel. So the Israelites, God had led them out of Egypt, and, and, and then they eventually wandered around for 40 years, and finally, Joshua, they, they enter the promised land, and you would think, oh, everything's going to be great. They land in the promised lands, and it's like chaos. There's no, no, there's no government, there's no, there's, it says there's no king, there was a time there was no kings, and we're told the judges, in this time, the people basically did whatever came to their mind. It was just anarchy. It was chaos. There was no glory. I mean, so, and so what happened with that chaos and that disorder and whatever is that the Israelites would continually get themselves into trouble. I mean, they would end up in these major serious problems or they would be, in, 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 you know, they'd be captured by other enemy armies, whatever. And the book of Judges, which is right at the same time, is a basically a, you know, one story after another of God bringing them a deliverer, a judge, that would come and help them out. It was a cycle of getting into trouble, being delivered, you know, and then continuing to you know, sin and do those, whatever came to their mind, and then same thing over and over and over again. So here you are in this period of time of chaos and anarchy and then famine hits. Can you imagine? I mean, think about, like, a hurricane hits a city. Like, I can remember New Orleans or whatever. Or uh, the power goes out. But there's something little like that in a, in a society that has laws, a society that has a government and whatever. What happens? It just goes crazy, right? There's looting, there's craziness, and so on. Can you imagine? 
there was a bad start to this story. Um, okay, then we meet this guy, Elimelech, and he's got some choices to make. I mean, he's got to make some decision here what to do. Well, how do I, you know, what do I need to do here with my family? Okay, and so he's got a choice. And here's the thing, though. Even though his name means God is king, okay, we see that he decides to leave Israel to travel to Moab. So Limelech decides to take his family and leave to this country, this, this area, to kind of the southeast of, of the Jerusalem area, Palestine area, called Moab. Okay? Now, um, in his mind, he obviously was doing the right thing. I mean, I gotta feed my kids, right? You gotta just hear him say that. Like, hey, we gotta eat. We gotta do, you know, I've gotta provide for my family. I have to, um, I have to um, make sure I protect and make sure my family's in a good place. But let's ask some questions. Did God call Elimelech? Moab? Not that we can see. Now, and also, you got to understand, this isn't just any place. Okay, we can't really tell whether God, but from what we can tell, God's not saying, hey, go down to this place. Okay, so he's making this call on his own. And here's the thing, though. Uh, uh, the problem with this decision is that uh, the Moabites were a godless, idolatrous what we can tell, they were a wicked, messed up place. And so, so he's leaving Israel. Yes, Israel's in the state of chaos and so on. But he's he's almost in some sense leaving the fire, the, the fire going into the fire, they say. Um, but the thing is, is um, uh, the Israelites um, were not really to associate with them. And they were not to marry. They were married away. As a matter of fact, if, if, if an Israelite married a Moabite and they had children for 10 years, those children were not allowed to be associated with the worship of God. And that was to discourage the intermarrying with the Moabites. Because the idea was you, you intermarry with them and you uh, associate with them, you're going to begin to assume their ideals, you're going to assume their worship, you're going to assume their culture. And so God said, you're going to stay away from them. So, Elimelech here is making a choice to take his family away from where God has told him and told the Israelites to be, to, to move them away from the worship of God's people, the support and encouragement and the things that come with being associated with God's people. And he's going to remove them out so that he can provide for their finances. And I would, I'm going to say, because we, I know what happens, this, this was probably not a good idea. Okay? Uh, this was not a great idea. So, um, so we see Elimelech is providing for his family, but in order to provide for his family, he was removing them from God's land, and he's removing, he's, but he's, he's failing in some other areas. So here, just, just a side note, guys. Men, it is your responsibility to provide for your family. Here's the thing. 
That doesn't mean just financially. We were to provide for your family financially, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Now, this I'm not trying to undercut the, the, the extreme value and importance of our ladies, okay? But what, what, would our, what would our society family look like if we had men who would stand up and not just go to work and bring home the bread, but would provide? I mean, we need strong, safe men, don't we? We need strong, safe men in our families that are providing for our, our kids and everyone. I was just explaining to my son Watts the other day, and we were, he wanted this, our Xfinity has an app, and you can watch TV on your app now. TV's not good enough, you have to go in the other room on the call TV. Anyway, um, like a portable thing, you know. Uh, but there's this app, and so he was really wanting, and I was like, listen, Watts, until we know that, you know, we can put parental controls on it or whatever, you're not getting it. Because it is our job to protect your heart and your mind. He's like, and it's just my, it's just like it's my job to protect you physically. And I asked him, I was like, if would I let you go run around in traffic? No. I'm not going to let you run around in there either. So men, it is your job. It's your role to lead your family spiritually. And the Rimelech is sacrificing the spiritual well-being of his family by leaving. Now, side note two, don't name your kids um, um, what was it? Weak and useless. Don't do that. I don't know. That's just a side note, okay? Don't name your kids uh, useless and weak. It's not good for their self-esteem. Let's read on, okay? Um, let's, let's find out what's going on in the rest of the story. So, uh, starting back, this is verse 3. But, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so, we, we see things are getting even worse. So it started bad. And, you know, you're in the period of judges, there's famine, and so they head off, to, and, and then the bottom falls out. It just completely comes out. And so, so we see Naomi. Naomi now becomes kind of the, the focal point here. Her husband has died, and now her two children have died. And this is a really, really bad place to be. Okay? Her husband and sons are dead. And now she's in a really uh, desperate way. Very, very hopeless. Now, we can say, even today, if somebody was to lose their spouse and their children, man or a woman, even today, the modern world, you're talking about horrible devastation. You can't even imagine how somebody on in life after a tragedy like this, right? So let's think about it. Just feel that for a second, and let's put it back into this ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern context, in which basically 
men were the supports and the livelihood of the family. It was, it was her livelihood. So if your husband died, you would, if you had a son, you would at least have him to help take care of you. But that didn't exist. So this is in the ancient world when uh, welfare didn't exist, uh, food stamps didn't exist. None of that existed. And so she's destitute at this point. She's bankrupt. There's no life insurance policies. There's nothing there. There's no social uh, net here at all. And now she's also uh, in a foreign country. So, you know, the only hope of a widow at that point would have been family, relatives, even extended family or whatever. And that may have been existed, but now they're in a foreign country. So she, she is in a bad, bad place. And so this situation gets bad and gets worse. Let's keep reading. Let's see. We're going to pick up in verse 6, see what happens here. So, Naomi, she, she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the, the fields of, in the, the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them rain. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter in laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, We go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons to my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you, to, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No, no. So here's Naomi. She's got now she's in this, you know, she's in this really bad position. So for her, the best slim chance option is to return to her homeland and hope that somebody, an extended relative or something, would help her out a little bit. But here she is, she's got these two daughter-in-laws. And so in the ancient world, uh, actually still the same way in the Middle East when 
when a, when a husband, uh, you know, a family with, with, uh, with uh, a mom's son is married, it, his daughter-in-law has become a part of the family. And so it was, it was probably, you can see they're pretty close. There's this close relationship going on here. And because, you know, they were probably working together, you know, serving together, uh, living life together, and so on. And so there's a familial bond that's kind of grown here. And so she's like, hey, guys, there's no hope with, for you guys anymore. You guys need to return back. to Just go back to your families and try again. And they're upset about that. Orpha says, okay, that's my best chance. But Ruth, who we see, has obviously experienced some kind of spiritual conversion. She says, no, I'm going to return to you, to your people, and to your God. She knows that her best chance is in God. And so she sticks with her. Now, uh, the reason Ruth is saying, hey, you guys should jump ship. You know, you guys should get out of here. You just think about it. The, the, the idea that they would go with her and somehow find husbands in this in, in Israel was pretty far-fetched. But, I mean, like, think about this. Let's just try to imagine what it would have been like for these ladies coming back to Jerusalem. Like, okay, so they come back, and they're looking for husbands. So let's, let's use some modern terminology. So they they, they post on uh, eHarmony, right? So here they are, some, some, some eligible ladies heading to, to Israel, you know, to you know, the Jerusalem, Bethlehem area, looking for, for a new uh, marriageable husband. And so they post on eHarmony. And can you imagine what the post might look like? I, I kind of was thinking about this, okay? Um, it would be something like this. Woman from an idolatrous, wicked people that began incest, seeking marriageable man, who would be willing to take care of her and her bitter old mother-in-law. Oh, and by the way, if you have kids, they can't go to church for 10 years. Like that, but hey, let's line up who's next, you know, who's ready? You know, sure, sure kind of thing, right? And so the reality was there was no hope for them as they were moving forward. And yet, she's, she's like, I'm with you. I'm going with you. Let's let's do this. So uh, Ruth takes this. She sticks with her, and she's loyal and says, "I have a new people. I have a new God. And I'm going to trust that." And so let's read on. So verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of. I can, I can, there's probably a number of reasons why this might have been the case. And the woman said, is this, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her. She returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
So they are not, they're backing for him, and they're backing Israel. Very little hope. Uh, you know, this journey has taken probably several weeks. The dangerous desert land was probably on foot, and they didn't even have American Airlines to, to take care of them. Uh, but they made it. Okay? And so then we see where Naomi is. She says, they say, is this Naomi? She said, don't call me that. So the, the name Naomi means uh, pleasant. Or maybe even like a gift. She said, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Which is bitter. She's renaming herself. So we really kind of get a picture of where she is. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And so what we see is that Naomi, through her circumstances, has grown bitter and angry in the face of all that's gone on. And it would, I mean, let's just stop for a second. Who could blame her, right? If I had faced part of what she's had to face, if I had to just make that journey on foot, I would be better at angry, probably. Right? Uh, you haven't faced, her whole life has fallen apart, and, and she has grown bitter and angry about it. Here, here's a question I want to look at in this today. What is our response to when bad things happen? What is our response when our life isn't going the way we think? What is our response when suffering comes? What is our response to that? And I want to ask the question, does suffering cause you to grow bitter, or does it cause you to grow better? Suffering causes you to grow bitter and angry, or is it causing you to So I just want to look at that today. I want to land in on that today. We look at this story. Okay? Naomi um, grew bitter and angry at all that she suffered and faced. And so I've met so many people that are right where Ruth is right here. They're burned, they've lost so much, and now they're angry about it. And they're going to share that with the world. You know these people, right? They're just, they're frustrated, they're angry, and now they're, you know, and I've known some, some ladies in particular, I've known some men like this, life has just been hard, it's been, it's been an unfair, bad deal, and now they're just, they're just angry. But I, frankly, there is church in Charles. You know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, funny like, comedy parody uh, Facebook thing called the uh, Church Curmudgeon. And it's like, oh, it's like exactly what some old, bitter, angry man or woman in a church would say. And that's like their post. It's really funny stuff, right? And, uh, but we get it because we've seen those people and they're mad and angry that things didn't turn out the way they thought. Now, there's a whole other group of people I know as well. They're kind of on the other side of that. Their, their hopes are tied on the, 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 their plans for their lives, their hopes, their, their relationships, their marriages, their kids, or this or that or whatever. And they live in a state of fear and dread that we might end up like them. And that, and that in itself saps life and joy. And it just creates the, the potential for bitterness, despair, and anger. 
So how do we prepare ourselves for when, and I have to say, how do we prepare ourselves when this stuff's going to happen? This stuff is going to happen. There's bumper stickers that say it. Stuff happens, you say it the other way, right? Okay? Because it does. Bad things are going to happen in your life. I wish I could tell you better than that. I wish I could tell you that, oh, if you do the right thing, you have the right formula, you believe in God enough, you have enough faith, God loves you enough, whatever bad things aren't going to happen. That is not going to be. Okay? We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. Bad stuff happens. So, question is, are you, how are you preparing for that? And how will you respond when it comes? Or how have you responded? That's the question. How do we respond to struggle, suffering, temptation? So Naomi had a choice, and her choice seems to be one of the feed bitters. She is she's really struggling with this. Um, so she had a choice. How does suffering cause us to grow bitter? Does it cause us to grow better? Now, Naomi, notice she makes a theological statement. Theology is the study of God. So this, it is the study and making statements about God, who he is, and what his world is like, and so on. And so when I, when I went to college seminary, Bible college seminary, I took theology classes, all kinds of things. Okay? But, so Naomi here is making a theological statement. Notice what she says. Okay? She says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So she's making a theological statement. She's declaring that the Almighty, this, she's making a statement about who God is. That God is Almighty. In other words, God is in control. He is so powerful. He is in control of everything. The Almighty is in control of all things. In other words, He is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And because of this, he is ultimately responsible for her situation. So she puts it on him. Can we read verses 19 and 22? Can we read those verses? Yes, he did. You want to go back? So notice she says, I want to make sure we did. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back. Empty. She is she is putting the blame and the, the responsibility for her situation on God. Y'all see that? So that, that is a theo, theological statement that she's making here. Okay. So is it true? Is she right to, to put this on God? Is it correct for her to say? God has dealt bitterly with me. It's the Lord who has brought me back empty. In other words, she's saying it is his fault. It's God's fault. Is that right? Is that correct? Okay. So, would, so let's ask some questions. Would God cause a famine in the land of his own people? Would God do that? These are his people. Why would he? told in the book of Judges that the people continued to sin, continued to turn away from them. Actually, when they entered the land of Palestine, the promised land, it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Do 
that they, when they first got there, they, the grapes were so large, it took two guys to carry a bundle up. So it was a, a very wealthy, rich, lovely, uh, flourishing place. And then by the, so the, as God's people continued to turn away from him, you know, the land, by this time, it's just, just nothing. But, you know, would God do that? So, uh, ask another question. Did this situation result because of Elimelech's decision? Was it his fault? Did Elimelech, this was his bad choice to take them out of Israel and take them to Moab, and maybe put them in a situation where their lives were in danger. Who knows, right? So, was it his fault? Now, then let's ask another question. Did God kill Elimelech and his sons? Does God do that? Does God just like strike people dead? What's going on here? Okay. So here, I want to look at, let's look at Naomi's theological statement. She makes this statement. I'm going to say this. I think Naomi's theological statement is both correct and incorrect at the same time. Okay? She's saying something true, but it's also not true. Okay, let's look at this. First of all, I believe, yes, she is correct in saying that God is sovereign and in control of all things. He is control. God is sovereign over every minute detail. God is sovereign over every molecule everything in this world. The Bible describes God as, as the decider, the planner, the, 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 the uh, God, and that everything that even exists holds together by the very power of God. Um, throughout the Bible, God is described, and we are, we are taught that God is in control of everything. Matter of fact, there are over 300 references in the Bible, Old New Testament, to God's sovereignty, His control, His plan, His purposes, and His sovereignty in the world. As a matter of fact, there's one website I saw listed 365 of them. You can read a verse about God's sovereignty and His plans in the world every day of the year. So there, there are attempts, there are theological attempts for people to try to say, well, maybe God isn't entirely because that way we can explain bad things, like, you know, Elimelech and some died. Other bad things happened, famine in the land, you know, tsunamis, hurricanes, all these things. So maybe God has decided not to be in control of all that. Or maybe God just isn't capable of being in charge of all things. The problem with that is the overwhelming testimony in Scripture that it is in fact God is. So she's right there. Yes. Yet, the Bible is also full of references that point to the reality that human beings make choices and then there's a cause and effect. And that human beings are responsible for what we do. And so there's a result and there's things that happen because sin and fallenness are in this broken world. Now, so we can ask the question, why was Israel in famine? Potentially because of their sin. Maybe it was somebody that sinned before them, or it was a community thing. We don't know. Why was 
why would, uh, you know, was it because of Elimelech's decision to take them? That was a bad situation? Yes. Or was it because, um, um, it was, a, you know, because of something happened that was, you know, at a work site, somebody was lazy in their sin, and a big rock fell on Elimelech and his sons all at the same time? You know, we don't know. But then, yes. What is it? And so here's the thing. The Bible doesn't necessarily attempt to, to fully reconcile these realities. But God is indeed infinite and sovereign in control of everything. Nothing happens outside of God's control. However, there are cause and effect, and there are choices, and we are responsible for them. So which is it? Is God sovereign and control all things, or is, is he, or, or are we responsible to make good choices and so on? In other words, did God do it? Or was it humans? Yes. That's the Bible's answer. Yes. Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So it's both. And so what do we do with that? Um, so, so Naomi was right. God is Even our mistakes, even our our falteries, our horrible choices, he is sovereign over those as well. But secondly, Naomi is, is wrong because she knows she says this: God has dealt very bitterly with me. Okay, what is she? She's making yet another theological statement here. She's saying Naomi. She's making well, not just a statement, but more of an assumption. She's making a theological statement, a theological assumption. She is assuming that everything that appears to be bad, everything that goes wrong, is because God is dealing bitterly with her. That God is somehow out to get her and is going after her, her bad, going after bad for her. That God is against her. And that's a normal assumption, isn't it? Think about it. I mean, if something bad happens, I think, God, why would you, what's, what's going on here? And I, I know unbelievers, the atheists kind of start asking those questions. You know, how can God allow this stuff? Does this mean God is bad? Does this mean God is evil? What does this mean? And so, but she's assumed that's what it means. That somehow she's in a bad place with God. Maybe it's because of the result of her husband and her bad choice to go to Moab. Maybe it was any number of other sins, other problems, whatever. She feels like God is now out on out to get her. God is against her. So, and you know, and here's the thing: could she trace her history? Think about it. What's her history? Like we already mentioned Joseph. Joseph's in her history. Remember Joseph? Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Okay, and then. That uh, while in slavery, he's accused of adultery and is put into prison for 40 years. 40 years. That's a lifetime. And then, because of God's blessing or whatever, he ends up in a very high position in, in Egypt. Right when, again, another famine hits and his family comes to Egypt. Who could have planned that? Who could? 
And so when he finally reveals himself and is reunited with his brothers, they are distraught, obviously guilty, and ashamed because of what they've done to their brother. And he says, I forgive you. You meant it for good, but God, excuse me, you meant it for evil. You were trying to get rid of me, but God was planning this all out. He meant it for good. If Naomi could have just thought back to that and said, hey, maybe, maybe I'm in a Joseph journey here. Maybe things aren't exactly the way I think they are. Maybe my theological assumptions are wrong here. But, but she can't see that. She has made a theological assumption that because bad things are happening to her, God couldn't possibly love her. And so this turns her into bitterness and anger. Uh, John Piper says this about this very thing. He says, when we've decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the corner. We can't see it. It's all bad. It couldn't possibly be good. Now, I'm not going to give away the story yet, but we, we know that the things do turn out and that God is using her little story, her little tragic story, to line up things for when the Savior himself would come. Now, she can't see that. Reminds me of um, uh, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. God, I love those books. I've been reading back through them. And the, there's the, uh, the story of the horse and his boys. And it's a little boy who... Um, is uh, obviously doesn't, he's uh, been taken in by a man that's not his father, and he pretty much worked as a slave his whole life, and but he, he's always longing for another country and whatever, and then one day, um, this, uh, this this warrior king comes to his house, or whatever, and the horse starts talking to him, because he's from Narnia, and the two of them decide to get away from this country and return to Narnia, and he wants to get away from this English language and all and and, uh, and in the story, all these things happen. I'm not gonna give away. I don't give away too much of the story. Go read it. It's so good, right? And all these things. Like, there's these lions that chase them, and then um, all these bad things seem to be happening. And then and then towards the end of the story, this young boy, uh, he's all these things have happened, and he's been instrumental in pretty much saving Narnia. Uh, and he's walking along. He's, he's lost. And all of a sudden, he feels a presence beside him. He's riding on his horse. He really can't see it. And it turns out he realizes this is a huge lion. And, and he's terrified. And he asks him, you know, and he talks to this lion. And the lion explains to him, you know, I've been there all along. I was, I was the one who uh, pushed your little raft as he was um, thrown into the ocean, basically. Uh, I was the one who pushed you ashore. I was the one who chased you in the woods and, and met you up with you and your other parents and kept you up together. I was the one who, who scared off enemies at times when you thought you were being threatened by this lion. I was the one who, who chased you guys down and even tore the back of this world. Uh, that was to make you guys run farther. And then the next day, after he's had this conversation, with this lion, who he, turned, he learned is 
Aslan. Straight through the line of our dreams. We realized on the way back the very day on that southern path there was a change for us. A lion that we were so terrified walking by was keeping him from crawling on her hands. So he looks all of a sudden, all these things that seem horrible and terrible and like even frightening and, and destructive in his life were all moving him forward and taking him to where Aslan wanted him to be, needed him to be. And he couldn't see it. So what's the point here? When, when bad things, when tragedy, when suffering, when things don't turn out the way we think they are, it seems like it's out of control. It seems like it, there's, there's no purpose or point to it. Let me tell you what. If you are one of God's people, that is absolutely not true. Her theology at this point is totally false. God is not against her. As a matter of fact, God is absolutely for her. And he's using all these circumstances to move her forward to where he needs her and where she needs to be. So, we need a better theology of suffering. We need to be, we have such a theology of suffering that when that we're prepared for it when it comes, and that when it comes, we know we're able to respond to it in a way that doesn't make us bitter, but makes us better. Because you see, you notice Ruth here in this story? Ruth, she's not going around, oh, I'm bitter. Ugh, don't even call me my real name. Call me bitter. Ugh. Like, okay, can you come over and hang out, please? No. Stay home if you're like that, right? You know, it's like nobody wants to be around that. And, you know, so Naomi's going around, bitter old woman. And Ruth, she's like, there's hope. There's, there's a sense of trust and hope in her. Does she know what's going to happen? Does she have any hope for a husband or anything? Like, no. But we know it comes. Uh, get away. You're not looking like funny here. Right? Yeah, right. Here's the thing, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, gives us that hope. If you return to Romans chapter 5, and I don't think I have this for the screen, sorry. Romans chapter 5 says this. It's something really strange here, I think. Verse 1 says, Therefore, concluding out of the gospel here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So, what he's saying here is, because if you believe and you trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you are now justified before God. In other words, all, this, all the sinful record, all the shame, all that in, in your life, past, present, future, is now, is, is, if you're acquitted, you are justified. And that this word justified means you are declared righteous. You are now given a new record of righteousness. That's what happened. On the cross, we were forgiven. We're not just forgiven. We are also given Jesus' perfect record of righteousness so that when God looks at you, you are therefore not seen as a sinner. You're seen as perfect. You ever, have you ever heard that before? 
God sees you as perfect. So later in chapter 8, he says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There can't be. There can be no condemnation, there can be no conviction, no jail time for somebody who's innocent if it's just. And so we are justly declared perfect, forgiven, and righteous. So therefore, since you've been declared perfect, forgiven, and righteous, we have peace with God. We have the, the rec- it's a reconciled relationship. We can have a perfect, peaceful relationship with God. So, through Him, faith, so through Him, we have ex- obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, now that we've been forgiven and declared righteous, we look ahead in hope. What he's going to do. But look, look, not, not only this, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, in other words, instead of going bitterness and going to anger, we rejoice. When the bottom falls out, when tragedy hits, when you face suffering, because we know we have peace with God and God is in control of everything, we know that it is going to be good and glorious in the end. We don't know how. We, we, may, we, we may never know how in this life, but we can trust and hope knowing that it will be good. Because God is so we know that God is using these things to produce endurance in us, to produce hope and character. Don't you know that the people with real character and grit in this life are those who've had to face suffering and have used it to produce hope? Do you know that? The gospel gives us a proper perspective on the things in our lives. So, Four important lessons, real quick. Number one, God uses bad stuff for good reasons. Like that Romans 8 28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and call according to His purpose. All things are working for good. That means even your bad choices. Ever thought that? Like, you know, I can see God letting this or that, but even your own sin. Your own bad choices, your own things, God can use for your good and for his glory. Secondly, we need to trust in God's sovereign control. We need to try, we need to let go and trust that he knows what's happening. We don't need to. Does that make sense? Like, so I have a control freak, and I like to drive. Because somehow it gives me a sense that somehow it's going to be a better result, right? So that, therefore, uh, you know, I'm usually jumping in the driver's seat. My wife's sitting here not driving. However, when we're on a trip, okay, and I get too tired to drive, you know, I'll jump over and, you know, try to sleep in the car. But because I'm a control freak, I can't do that. Because every little thing, I'm thinking, <gasps> you know, I'm not in control. You know, instead, I should just let it go. You know, the, the, the state of Florida gave, issued her a driver's license for a reason. You know, actually, 
I've had more accidents than she has. Um, listen, I mean, there's all kinds of empirical evidence I can weigh into the situation and say, you know, she's a good driver. She can control the situation. I can just chill out and take a nap. That's what we need to do. Chill out and take a nap. Let it go. Rest in the fact that whatever's happening, he's doing it. It's in his hands. Thirdly, we need to trust that God is good. The gospel declares that he is good and that he has the best intentions and the best plan for you. His plan is better than yours. Fourthly, we need to have eyes that can see blessings that are that are right in front of us. Well, we, I don't know about you guys, well, I tend, when bad things are happening, that's all I see. Are you that way? I get blinded by it. Naomi was so blinded by her bitterness. She couldn't see the blessing. She couldn't see that they just happened to be in the perfect timing. Do y'all notice this? The perfect timing to show back up in, in Israel during the barley harvest. When they're actually producing food that they can you know, be a part of. We're going to see that as we look at it. What about Ruth? She doesn't, she's not count. she's got this amazing daughter-in-law who loves her, who's dedicated to her, who's come to know God. Like, you know, like, countless other things she couldn't see, but she's blinded by the, by the, by the brightness of the gospel. And so, we need to pray to ask God, God, give me eyes so even when things aren't going the way they should, even when things are bad, God, help me to count the blessings that are in my life. Because they are. And I know some of you guys are going through some messed up stuff and hard, difficult, painful things. Don't let those things, I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss or diminish them. Let those rob the joy you can have in the blessings that are around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you um, for this beautiful story, this beautiful love story that challenges us that we would not grow bitter, that we would grow better. Lord, that we would be people of open character. Because no matter what comes, if we, we can stand for it because we know. From your hand, you're good, and you are working all things for good. Help us to have eyes of faith, Lord, um, and help us to learn from Ruth and Naomi in this situation. Help us to see uh, what you struck and say, at the best to come. That's the way you do Help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like you said,